This podcast and the many that follow are proudly brought to you by our partner, Titleist, the number one ball in golf. Now, as it relates to earning an edge, our friends at Titleist have been the leaders since the early 1900s. And in order to compete and win at the highest level, frankly, there's no room for second best. For this reason, the best players in the world trust Titleist. Welcome to the Earn Your Edge podcast. I'm Corey Lumberg from Walters Performance. Cameron McCormick <laughs> talking right on top of you, but that's kind of what I do. Yeah, that's okay. All right. So we're here for mailbag number two. But before we get into that, a call to action, a little bit of housekeeping. We enjoy doing this. We enjoy doing this immensely. We get to have some great conversations with some amazingly insightful and genuine contributors. And we want to continue to do it, but we need your help. And we could use your help by making sure that if you appreciate it, if you're finding value in it, that you are sharing it. And that could be as simple as a text to three people uh, sending a link to the podcast. It could be something you put out there on the social channels that uh, you may have tentacles into. So as Gary V says, he requires or looks for that feedback and that sharing and that's his oxygen. And I think we would echo that sentiment. Yeah. And the idea of 5149, where we want to provide as much value to you as we can, but hopefully there's, there's going to be a few asks here and there. And the people that have shared and kind of moved this message to other people, we've appreciated. We just hope that happens more. Yeah. Ideally, hopefully we're pushing it about a 90. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're, yeah. Until you, the listener actually shares it, we're at a hundred zero. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. Share it for us. But many have. All right. Ready to dive in? Yeah. Let's go. All right. Okay. So our first question is from at Jay-Z Good. What is the greatest lesson that you have learned from the tour players that you coach? That one's easy. That they get the job done with something less than their best. You know, you watch golf on television and you'd be easily misled into thinking that to play at a world-class level, you have to be playing with a game or a skill set that's essentially like playing on PlayStation. That almost, if not every shot, is world-class. That you're hitting targets and you're sinking putts from long range and you're infallible, essentially. And and that couldn't be further from the truth. But I guess the discerning listener is probably already aware of that. But even to the level of the season two of professional, the folks that are out there when they may have their B game or even C game on their off weeks, they're still making cuts and they're still getting by. And they're using those, uh, let's say, off weeks to audition different fields and different, um, let's say, styles in their swing to hopefully produce the results. They're going to give them their A-plus results, their A-plus sensation. So I think from a practical standpoint that we need to recognize that we're not always going to have that A-plus. And if you're on the range and you have something less than that, as long as you find predictability and start direction and direction of curve and possibly amount of curve that you should go out and challenge yourself to play with maybe something less than the ideal. So let's take a quick break in the action to recognize one of our partners, Under Armour. It's Under Armour's mission to make all athletes better through passion, design, and the relentless pursuit of innovation. And that ethos or mission statement couldn't be more aligned with the Earn Your Edge podcast. We're thankful to be powered by Under Armour. Next question is from at Keith Blackstone. What is your minimum requirement to accept a student? Go, Corey. I would say that I I think that people, you could look at our Instagram feed and you could look at like the perception of maybe who we coach. And for the most part, it is really, really good players. And that is not necessarily the criteria or the requirement. It's more that you're all in. You're just as committed as we are in you. 
And so I think back to coaching at a private club and having recreational players that I would be dealing with on a daily basis. It's like you see them once and then maybe three weeks later you see them like, okay, how's the practice been going? Can you, can you debrief me on what's been going on? And it's like, well, I haven't really played a whole lot. I haven't practiced yet. And that's when it's like, oh, wow. yeah, this is brutal. It's like, I, I just, all I care about, I don't care about the ability. All I care about it is that you are all in and that you are just as, as invested in your development as I am. And then it becomes fun to, to come to work because you're, you're helping people who really have a, a kind of passion for getting better. In far less words, a willingness to invest sweat equity. Moving on. Great question. Yeah, though. You've always been uh, very succinct with your words. Way to go. At Santerre Mathieu, how much do you fit your coaching to the players and how much do players need to match your coaching? I can clearly and briefly answer that one by saying it's the former, that we fit our coaching to the needs and desires of the player. Uh, They'll sit down in front of us and express a want. And if that want is realistically aligned with what they need to achieve whatever goal it is, whether that's distance, whether that's better ball control, whether that's lower scores, then we will execute to that end. And there's no, we're style agnostic, meaning that you can uh, implement the technique required to hit a draw in many different ways. And therefore we'll call plays out of a playbook to achieve that goal, no matter what style we achieve it with. Okay, I'm going to dig into this one because I think it's worth digging into. I promise we'll be brief. But considering the last question, there's a little bit of, uh, it's easy to kind of connect these two. What would it look like? And this is for, I want to ask for the benefit of a player that's listening. What would the red flags be? And what would it look like if you're in a session for the first time with someone and it's clear that there's a misalignment? Like what, what would be the red flags that you would be looking for that says, well, this is not someone that I would want to coach or Maybe my, is there a, a situation where your coaching style would not fit and it's become very clear and evident to you early on? A fixed mindset. Someone that presents to a coaching or instruction session with already a relatively fixed, may not be necessarily concrete, but it's certainly setting hard concrete determination as to what they need. Uh, when they'll stand in front of you and they'll say, I've, I've, I know what my problems are. And I just need you to listen to me and then help me find a solution to these problems. Uh, I think on the other hand, the other end of the continuum is I don't know what I don't know and help me get to somewhere, particularly when you're talking about expressing that to coaches with wisdom, coaches with 10, 15, 20 or plus years experience of doing this, then typically they've seen your specific problem to that golfer out there. And if you just be patient and let them run through their playbook, they're going to come up with something, whether it's the first time, the second or the third play they call, it's going to be solution to you. So moreover, it's uh, someone with a very fixed mindset to reiterate that same point. Okay, good. Next question at Matt Gilchrist, AU, a Altus client. Hey, Matt. Um, the question is a really good one. What is your most successful coaching moment? Cameron? I'm going to let you. So the, I'll part. just, I, I will go kind of stream of consciousness without putting a whole lot of thought and effort into this question. I, I will say that the first thing that comes to mind, which is probably the most accurate answer is last summer in August of last year, Andrea Pavan winning on the European tour for the first time and knowing that if I had any kind of hand in that, which I, I hope that I was, uh, you certainly had a contribution. Yeah. Right. Uh, Andrea would echo that. Yeah. And, and so it's definitely, uh, obviously it's on the, on a big stage, it's European tour and it's someone who had kind of strived for that goal for a long time. Mm-hmm. 
And so to have been a part of that feels really, really good. It's a little bit of validation. Were you at the event? No. Where were you? I was at home. Just for the benefit of you as yeah, I know. I was at home. I was at, I was at home and I was on <laughs> a different live broadcast this. Yeah. You were at home and? Very different time zone and cheering as hard as I could. What did that look like? Like, what do I physically look like? Like fist pumping. Like yes. he made like miles of putts in the last round. And yeah. so he was playing Patrick Harrington coming down the stretch. It was really close. And then he kind of made a, he made a putt coming down the stretch, 16 or 17, par three, made like a 30 footer. And that gave it a little bit of breathing room to finish up. But the last hole, 18th approach over water, a little nerve wracking, but yeah. So yeah, long story short, I was cheering hard for him. How does it feel when you relive it right now? Yeah, it feels, it feels really good. It makes you now having some separation. It's like, Oh, time to do that again. Did you let out a little cheer when he won on like, the 18th hole? Uh, just expletives pouring out excited <laughs> fist pumps yells yeah i'm very do you I'm want very, to give us a sample no 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 i should i'm sure uh, but very vocal just as i would for jordan or anybody else that we that's an altus client you're all in you cheer hard i, I, I know cheer that about so you. hard i cheer so hard yeah. yeah i cheer hard internally but i cheer passively externally like to look at me watching yeah. players yeah no that's be it mini tour or at the highest level i'm very very passive that's something that i've had to learn and adapt to at events mm-hmm. because i'll be watching at events and I've, I've in a moment of reflection i've realized that like i can't watch as i do at home or as i do when i'm looking at my phone i'm like fist pumping like i just have to be cool and calm i have to do my camera impression <laughs> act like it's not i'm not saying me. that's best practice what, what, it's well, just my no, practice it's probably yeah it's probably better than what yeah, i did so directly answer matt's question i think it takes many forms certainly there's the form of achievement at the highest level uh, i've watched jordan win at a major championship the 2017 open and that was the first time throughout the, I guess at that point, 12, 13 years we'd been working together, that I'd seen him win, that I'd been present for a victory. So to do it at a major championship, to do it at an event that I'm most fond of. I mean, I have recollection of waking up in the middle of the night watching the Open Championship when I was growing up back in Australia. And it was an event if I visualized at any point myself winning, making those putts on the putting green at my local club or hitting the shots necessary to win. That was the event that I would imagine. And so to, to do it there was further impactful. Uh, but at the same time, uh, to travel a journey with any person, be it a recreational player from, let's just, in theory, say 30 to 20 or 30 to 10, just the journey of improvement is memorable to me. So there are many successful moments, but Certainly the achieving at the highest level where the margins of separation are so darn small is uh, massively uh, memorable and uh, impactful and probably stands out as the greatest of achievements. So at Chris Smith TX, not out of the military until 25, is it too late to begin a journey to become a tour pro? The answer is no. Uh, there is no time that is too late. Granted, when you look at the extremes, we're too young or too late, there are limited case, limited numbers of people that have been successful. And I don't think that's because it becomes more difficult as you grow older, unless, of course, there are some situations where there are constraints, uh, be it economically or physically. But yet at the same time, I think just people get to an age and they stop playing, they give up, they think that their runway is over. So age is, should not be a primary rate limiter, no. 
I'm going to disagree with you. I feel like if you're 25, well, I guess I shouldn't disagree until I know what foundation of skill and experience is there. So that that's a, a pretty important um, piece of the of information that we're missing. But at 25, I mean, I think it's pretty important to have some serious time in the saddle, competitive reps. Even though your time horizon is another 25 years until the Champions Tour. And when we're talking about okay. becoming a tour pro, yeah. you can play all the way till you're 65. Yeah, well, I mean, if you want to... If you want to call it a Champions Tour player, then I guess it's possible. Oh my goodness, you're going to offend a lot of Champions Tour players <laughs> well, that that probably listen to this. So who am Direct I? No, all hate mail. No, no. I mean, who am I to say that what someone wants to accomplish they can't get to? I would say that uh, there's a lot of catch up to be done. I think you've got some insecurities, insecure, insecurities <laughs> yourself that are maybe be yeah, okay, maybe sure. attached to some inadequacies so that you possess. I'd that, like to take uh, this, time, <laughs> this time to announce my retirement from coaching. I'm going to pursue a playing career here at 35 years old and see what I can do. I will advocate in favor of that <laughs> uh, as long as you have enough backing to support yeah. those around you that rely on you for support. Yeah, I was hoping you'd be my coach. <laughs> I think you skipped one there. Okay. At Randy Voss three. I keep picking up swing aids. At what point do I move from swing aids and just take lessons? Fire away, Corey. Okay, that's uh, we've got it backwards a little bit. So swing aids, and nobody loves swing aids and training aids more than we do, but we love them because they represent an opportunity to provide feedback in new ways that we're interested in be like, okay, if I give, if I can give somebody feedback through this tool that is novel and fresh, I might be able to, to accomplish or accelerate the understanding of this in a way that I haven't been able to before, but that's just feedback. There's no prescriptive value for most training aids. There, 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 there can be, but there's no diagnosis or like, Hey, this is what you need to be doing. So I think the tendency is to think, I just saw this training aid and it is going to be exactly what I needed. I've never used this before and this is going to solve the problem like nothing ever has before. But in reality, and intrigue. Exactly. But in reality, it's just a feedback tool. It just tells you, are you within range? Are you doing it right? Are you doing it wrong? It, it's not solving the problem for you. So yeah. the you applicability get, of medicine is uh, only relevant as it relates to the uh, accurate diagnosis to the condition, right? So that's where we see training aids. And yeah, and I agree with the point you made that for us, training aids is like we're ants and that's sugar and we're going to flock to it. We're going to try and road test durability or dish them as best we can and recognize the deficiencies and, and the most prevalent or not even most prevalent, the array of use cases for that particular training aid, then apply it as necessary to get the greatest mileage for the student. But you don't know what's applicable until you have the uh, that appropriate diagnosis. So therefore, you know, if you their should starting using... point should be instruction. The starting point should be uh, the advice you're getting from someone that's PGA professional. And maybe you use that, you just use that as point me towards the right training aids. Point me towards the right ways, or the right sources of feedback that I, be, I should be tuned into. At Ben Armstrong 8, any drills to stop getting shot on the backswing and then open and flip in the downswing? I, I don't know that I've seen a, yeah. Yeah, a ton of cases where someone gets really shut, 
then opens and then flips. Mm-hmm. Typically that ad- adaptation for being shot, whether it's backswing or whether it's, it's at some point in the downswing is a path that shifts to the right to accommodate that shot face. But nonetheless, I think we can address the question by dividing it in two and conquering each uh, in their own right. So shut in the backswing. What's your go-to play and be as visual as you possibly can. Spin it. So I want you to, uh, you're, you're listening to your, you may be listening to your phone, so this may be hard to do, but oh. I want you to take your phone out. Get in your right hand. I'm doing it right now. If you're a right-handed golfer. Yep. And I want you to uh, pretend like you were looking at your, your, the face of your phone from about right hip high. Sure. Go. Okay. There I got go. it. Okay, yeah, cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So now you've rotated. We've got some supination of the trail arm. I think you missed a step there, though. But what at address, I? they're not looking at their phone. At address, oh, their phone's facing the tiger right, line. Right, right, right. Yeah. Okay, let's so start So you're basically gripping your phone like you would in your trail hand, right? Your right hand. It's facing the target. The screen of the phone is out, target wood, and then you're going into that. Go for it. Yeah. So then you're rotating, you're twisting basically is what we call it. We call it spinning sometimes. Mm-hmm. You're rotating that right hand to where you can now see the phone in mm-hmm. your right hand. You could see your text messages, check the pictures, whatever. And now you've got the face in a condition where it's like way open, miles open. Very, very neutral. Yeah. Absolutely. So start at a normal, start like grip your phone at address, then rotate it back to where you can see it. That's the best visual I could give you over and an, podcast. And another one that I would add to that is the sensation with your trail hand is there like you're dealing cards. You're dealing cards, someone to your right. And the way you would deal those cards is you would, is you would flip in that same. Did I say uh, with your right hand? Yeah, you your right hand. Yeah, you would spin your trail hand open in the same manner that Corey already described. Okay, can I get into some minutia real quick on that subject? That'll make us go a little bit more longer on this question. Go. What about? It is a very popular notion that you want to have tons of lead wrist flexion. You want a strong face at the top. So, what would you say about th- that kind of trying to rotate that right hand and do what we're prescribing right there? flies directly in conflict with a very popular line of instruction right now, which is a shut face, a lot of lead rest flexion. This is basically the opposite. I'm not too sure that it does. Sorry to disagree there. I think that it is the backswing is a preparatory phase, right? We're prepping for a delivery of the club. And oftentimes when we don't position the club correctly throughout the range in the backswing, then it becomes very difficult to make up those deficiencies in a shorter time frame, two tenths of a second versus eight tenths of a second, which is the backswing. So think that the flexion that's necessary to get the club face square to impart a reduced dynamic loft uh, rather than adding dynamic loft at the bottom of the swing still necessitates some of that sensation of lead wrist flexion. Well, and that answers the second part of this question, which is how do I make sure it's not open through downswing and I'm flipping at it, right? Right. It would be doing the opposite. It would be working your lead wrist now in a way where uh, the knuckles on your left hand for a right-handed golfer are turning away from the target. Like the logo of your glove is uh, pointing directly away from the target in early transition slash mid downswing. And then that most assuredly will get that club face facing down towards the ball uh, as you're coming into impact and provide a face that is certainly not as open as uh, maybe you're describing. Yeah. Okay. All right. That's about as good as we can descriptive as we can get there on podcast. Okay. The next question is from at the underscore Bo underscore show. I oh, believe, goodness. I believe that's Bo Hossler. Hello, Bo show. Yeah. The Bo show asks Cameron. Thanks for contribution here. My goodness. Yeah. What do you know about sumo chipping method? What do you Man. know about the sumo chipping method? This is like double top secret. Yeah, this is I don't like, know what you're talking this about. This is here. like back in the eighties, Australia competed in the America's cup. Okay. And the America's cup is the yeah, sure. penultimate like yacht sailing? racing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Sailing contest. 
And we had a secret weapon, and it was called the Winged Keel. And John Bertrand, who was the skipper, the captain of the, uh, the team at that point, uh, when the boat would come out of the water, would conceal it, would cover it up with cloth. So no one could see it until, I think we, I've heard of this. Yeah. until we won. And it's a, um, I think it's a national holiday in Australia, the anniversary of well, our success in the America's Cup. Hopefully but no, it's actually not. <laughs> but Bo Hostler, PGA Tour player, UC, playing on TV, asking me to disclose the sumo uh, short game method, chipping method. Man, that's like, yeah, what is that's that? beyond I, I the really, boundary of I feel like what I should is, disclose. Yeah, I have no idea what you're talking about, the sumo <laughs> method. So this this has to be, and I think it's important to, to note that one of our greatest kind of coaching tools is that we have our own vernacular. Mm-hmm. So we kind of develop our own like language that we understand. This would be one of those that I'm not privy to the sumo method. So I'm excited. I'm as intrigued as anybody. To learn uh, about this okay. you've, you've convinced me. So before I get into that, there's another one that I won't disclose in the podcast and that's a thigh, yeah, thigh gap fade. <laughs> and I'm sure Bo will, will find great humor and okay. listen to, to my reference to thigh gap fade. But nonetheless, what is the sumo chipping method? Uh, so Bo's a player that carries a lot of handle lead in short game shots a player that doesn't let the club head pass underneath the handle to create loft. And that leaves him predisposed to catching shots where the club lands into the ground a little bit late. Uh, The ball comes out a little bit lower than it otherwise should or what he wants it to. And so in order for him to make solid contact and create the trajectory we need, we need to drop the arc closer to the ground earlier. So when you think about the factors that would cause the arc to be closer to the ground, we start with statics. We start with what happens at address to encourage that. And the first one is body flex, knee flex, and also flex from the hip. And so at a recent event, I asked him, I want you to flex your knees a little bit more and really feel like you're squatting into your posture. And immediately, as soon as he said that, he says, but man, I feel like a sumo wrestler. And that's where the sumo short game method came from. And it was a image that really stuck well in his mind that allowed him to find the appropriate posture that will cause him to land the club correctly right at the back of the ball and create trajectory and ball control that he's looking for. Okay. There you go. Sumo Sumo chipping chipping method. method. Okay, we got it. All right. How are we doing on time? Oh, we're almost done. 30 minutes. 30 minutes. Okay. At long.davis, best way to work on your swing indoors technique or numbers? I'm not sure what he means by technique or numbers. Well, I think technique is the swing style and the numbers are clearly the Trackman numbers collision dynamics you yeah. might get from, from Trackman. I yeah. don't know why you would use any other launch monitor other than Trackman. Yeah, right. There you go. <laughs> nice work. Um, m- my initial answer to that is that if he's working indoors, if he's constrained to indoors, that means that we've got some kind of weather constraint. That means like that today we're, here in Dallas. Yeah, mm-hmm. That means that we're probably in the off season. So I, I think it's great. When we have weather like that, we probably means that we're not playing in events. It's a great time to do some indoor work, to focus in on technique. We talked a little bit on the last mailbag about periodization, about finding phases during the year, throughout the year, where we're focusing on something like technique. So I think that off-season, if you can't get outside because the weather won't allow it, it's a good time to be focusing on some, or maybe to it's a good use of that time to be making whatever form changes that you need to make that you and your coach have identified. And in fact, there are, there's a lot of research that would point you towards like the Dave Collins research that would say that indoor work and maybe work without a ball, work with, even without a club dry five versus live five. Exactly. Yeah. Like mirror work or something. Disconnection from the ultimate uh, outcome or maybe is an accelerant 
to making those form changes. So uh, I don't know that I have a comment on the numbers, like like, like best way to learn. But if, if I was going to use that time wisely, it would be just digging into form work with a lot of mirror, a lot of video, just digging into it. Yeah, my response relative to your last comment, I'm not too sure where, where you said, I'm not too sure that I have a comment regarding the numbers. I think there's a aspect of what is what is it that informs the work that you're doing. So recognizing there's a nice period of time throughout the winter time in many areas in the United States, if not the world, where you can do indoor work and you can get new patterns integrated. But what is it that informs that work? Oftentimes it needs to be an external resource, some, someone else other than what we can feel ourselves. And so use of TrackMan to provide us knowledge to the collision dynamics, what the instructions of the ball seeing, right? Uh, how's that ball flying is one thing, but also how are we colliding with that ball, the uh, swing direction, the attack angle, and therefore the club path and face angle and a whole host of other elements that might be relevant to uh, interpreting whether you're making progress and whatever it is that you're wanting to make progress on. But just as, at the same time, knowing how you get there is just as, if not more important, meaning 10 golfers can create the same club path and club face impact and do it, do it in, in 10 ways. unique ways. And so knowing that you're making ground in the way that you want to make ground on the particular strike quality or impact that you're looking to is also very important. So I wouldn't say it's either or, it's both. And there's an appropriate time to do that, which Corey mentioned, which is um, quite honestly right now in the winter. Next question from at Chase Butler Golf. How do you all start your day and end your day as an instructor? Or a human. <laughs> yeah. I, th I think as a coach, Chase was asking, should we, I feel like this is probably gonna be pretty similar. Should I take one and you take the other? I was going to say my day starts with the coffee and oftentimes ends with a cerveza at the end. But yeah. uh, should we disclose that there's cerveza involved in this podcast recording? Uh, yeah, maybe, I think maybe I just did. Yeah, I think we're good. <laughs> okay. How do I start my day? My day starts, well, for when I get on property, when I get at Trinity Forest, you don't want to know the the th four-year-old and one-year-old uh, activities. I don't think that Chase I, is okay. interested in that. Gotcha. I think he's looking for the pre-performance priming. Uh -oh. Exactly. There we I go. disclosed it. There you go. Okay. So we are looking, one is we look at who we have on the books for the day. Mm -hmm. And then we are looking at either uh, stats for recent events or recent rounds from that player, our client files, which have all the notes of all the sessions that we've had. Essentially medical records. Yep. And then looking at uh, maybe the last few swings, the last few sessions, so that we're just prepping ourselves yeah. uh, for those noticing cues. Pulling up some of the tr uh, historical track man data, some of the historical video fo footage, so we're primed and ready to go. Yeah, and then the one really critical piece, which I think that we've done a good job of more recently, at least speaking for myself, based on conversations that we've had with Dr. Wade Gilbert and kind of uh, communicating the importance of priming intent mm -hmm. and clarifying, all right, here's what I need to be bringing to this client as I start my day. Knowing your best self. Exactly. Yeah. So here's when what you, I look when you like. you coach best, here's what you look like. Here's what your manner is. Here's what you behave like. Yeah. So, and that's two sides. So one, here is what, when I'm on my A game, this is what I look like. A lot of enthusiasm, a lot of energy. I have a, a certain amount of clarity about what I'm trying to accomplish. So I'm trying to make sure that prepping my ability to do that. And then the second is looking at the individual based on what I know about their recent performance, what kind of energy, what kind of tone do they need from me and trying to cater to whatever those needs are 
and just trying to figure that out at the beginning of my day. Yeah. And a reminder there from our friend, Wade Gilbert, who, if you haven't listened to that podcast, it's probably around number 18 or 19. Go back and listen to it. Uh, amazing resource on coaching expertise is that every uh, coaching experience or opportunity is a performance. And uh, it's very easy to get stuck in that well-worn groove and kind of do just enough to get by. But quite honestly, when you're dealing with any player that is driven to improve, whether that be amateur player or professional player, you'll get found out pretty quick if you're not bringing the full force of your best effort and your best uh, uh, coaching face. Okay. So how do you end the day? Uh, end the day with a drive home and that drive home is reflection. Uh, I think moreover, ending the day is uh, ending a session. Ending a session is uh, closure with the client and closure with the actual session internally with myself. And the closure with the client is, uh, can they describe, demonstrate, and perform uh, much of what was or all of what was delivered during that session. And in the context of uh, movement change or swing change, that is, uh, can they use me as a sounding board, uh, reverse the flow of them being the teacher and me being the student, teach back to me? Yeah, and that, that's the piece that I wanted you to like to make that more explicit of an action step. Yeah. If either you're a coach or if you are receiving coaching, yeah. then having that moment to where at the end of the session, you, you ought to be required, able to teach back to teach your back instructor to or have the student teach back to you, the instructor, exactly uh, in their own words, quite honestly, what it was that you conveyed. And then further to that, they ought to be able to demonstrate it in a dry fire. So without a golf ball in the way. Uh, there should be enough kinesthetic awareness, which is awareness of how the body's moving, how the club's moving, to be able to perform what it is that you're asking. Uh, otherwise, you're going to run a, run up against a big roadblock, you being the golfer or you being the coach, anticipating that person's going to show back up in front of you with changed movement. So if they can describe and demonstrate, and then finally perform it with a live fire rep, which is the where the rubber hits the road, can they do it when the golf ball's in the way? And there's a big point of separation, isn't there? We all know that as coaches. And you know that as a recreational player, that your practice swing might be one thing might be exactly what you want but your actual swing might be something different and that's our job as coaches is to bridge that get it do it gap i get it i understand it coach but can i actually do it and so that's how we would close a lesson with a client but the closure for me the coach is about making sure that i've done all of my documentation i've saved every piece of what's the word i'm looking for collateral that helps me hit the ground running when that person shows up the next time. Because that's oftentimes not the next day. It's not fresh in my mind. It's a week away or it's a, a month away or you've half a year a away. Of, you've seen a lot of golf shots. You've seen a lot of golf yeah. shots and a lot of golf swings. And Walter Michelle's, um, oh no, Herman Ebbinghaus's forgetting or curve kicks marshmallow in. test. Okay. No, not marshmallow test. No, Herman Ebbinghaus's, the forgetting curve kicks in where there's this decay over time. Not only as golfers, maybe practicing once every two, three, four days, hopefully not weeks, but um, we as instructors as well um, lose touch with what that pattern was and what it is that we worked on. And so it's really important that we document to a pretty high level to make sure that we're hitting the ground running. Yeah. It's almost at the end of the day is making sure that the next time we have to prime ourselves at the beginning of the day, we can hit the ground running. Exactly. Okay. Uh, next question at Gray Townsend. An SMU just graduated SMU star and now one of our, or has been one of our clients for a long time. Mm -hmm. The best lesson slash nugget you've learned 
from the organizations you visited and the, your study tour. So quick, we've had two study tours now. Yeah, exactly. The first so, with Cricket Australia and the second all performance study tour. And uh, by the way, if you're a coach out there and you're interested in joining us on a study tour in the future, then please message us, DM us on Instagram, send us messages uh, through Twitter, or even a direct contact through our website, www.altersperformance.com, because we will conduct these things annually. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, and, and just more, I guess, motivation for or more background on the study tour is we got to a point where we, we certainly wanted to continue investing in our own continued education and kind of perceived a limitation in what was available to us within exclusively the golf community. Uh, not to say that there's not a lot of great education, but it's, it's we, amazing education, but it's still not turning over all stones, is it? Right. And so we went to uh, analogous markets. Mm-hmm. We went to other uh, industries that have some similarities to ours in terms of solving the same problems, exactly coaching individuals to excel at, uh, whatever the domain is to get, to get some ideas outside of just golf. Mm-hmm. And so we went to Stanford. We, uh, visited with coaches at Stanford, professors at UCLA, Cirque du Soleil, performance experts at Cirque du Soleil, mm-hmm. the UFC Institute. Uh, what am I missing? San Antonio Spurs, Dallas Cowboys, Dallas Stars, Texas Rangers, and that's certainly with inside inside the sport community. But then tapping L- into the LA Galaxy, the San Francisco Giants, knowledge base of Wade Gilbert, Facebook, Twitter, Facebook and Twitter, indeed, yeah. in the business domain. Yeah. So um, I will answer this one from Gray. The I don't know that it, it, I can't pick out just one because I feel like I heard this at a number of the organizations that we went to. A theme, maybe. Yes, was that these really high-performing organizations do an incredible job of communicating their culture and living up to it and making sure that all their actions are pointed towards living out whatever culture, whatever... I love uh, the way you said that, pointed towards. Mm-hmm. And, and as a the example that comes to mind first is when we were at the Dallas Stars and they have a new coach there that said that we're a puck pressure team. And I don't know enough about hockey to know what that means, but when he kind of expanded upon that was that every I I'm a coach that is coaching towards puck pressure. And so everything that we do is making sure that we live out that desire or that um, we're striving towards that goal of being a puck pressure team. And so as I kind of take that back to what we do at Altus is like, okay, well, what are we who, if, if as we see our clients, if they were going to respond to the question of, well, what does it mean to be an Altus client? I would want it to be, we leave no stone unturned. We make sure that we're doing everything we can to influence all the different elements that are going to influence performance in the long run. And so I think that, are we living that out on a daily basis, making sure that we have a lot of ways that, that, that culture or that ethos doesn't just live on our website and words, but that on a daily basis, our actions are moving us towards that culture and everything that we do is moving towards that. So, I mean, that, that's kind of what I, what I took out of a big thing that I took, a big nugget that I took out of our study tours. And anything I might add to that would be overfilling the cup, so I will not. Oh, so that's a good answer. Nice. Okay, good. Last. Last question. At Alejandro Gonzalez, who is a residential client of ours from uh, Central Mexico, here visiting with us at Alts Performance, what should go through your mind when you're standing on top of the ball? I think he means at the ball, but uh, yeah, if you're standing on top of the ball, then get off it, number yeah, one. That's a good idea. <laughs> but yeah, I guess in terms of swing thoughts, where should your attention be? And I think that there's this misconception out there to answer the question directly that 
your attention can't be divided, uh, divided between a feeling for movement, some sort of kinesthetic step, a swing feel, if you will, or a swing thought. And I think thoughts certainly turn into feels, and so I would use those terms synonymously. And at the same time, divided where? Divided into a shot intent, a trajectory and a shape intent towards a target area, or in some cases, a target specific. So when I tell you, when I, unpacking that, I guess uh, saying target area might be looking at a dartboard, looking at a gap between two trees, looking at a fairway. Target specific might be looking at the bullseye on the dartboard, or in golf, it might be looking at a, a specific stripe or a spot in the fairway and having a shot intent that would be the extrinsic or external. That would be the uh, point of kind of flight visualization that you have. But at the same time, it's okay and it's quite common. In fact, uh, I've had players stand in front of me and say, unless I have a swing feel, a swing thought, then I feel shackled. I feel uh, hamstrung or handcuffed and I really have a difficult time getting it back. So recognize that your brain has a capacity for attention. We'll call that 100%. And not 100% of it needs to be directed towards one aspect of performance, that you've got this um, CPU and you have a secondary CPU behind it of conscious and unconscious. And so you're using both of those things simultaneously as you're executing any task. It's the reason you can drive down the road and really not realize how you got to a routine destination somewhere you're where somewhere you're familiar getting to and do other things and those other things might be talking on the phone it might be talking with a person that's in the car where your conscious attention is driven or directed towards the conversation you might be having but your unconscious attention is directed towards where you're going and how you're getting there and you can do that relatively unconsciously so um, your mind can and should be directed to the things in your movement and also the outside environment or your intent for the flight. And you need to develop that well, don't you? You need to audition, uh, road test. I've used that term once before in this session, uh, what's effective for you because there's no one method. Yeah. What, what percentage of players that you've coached that are high performers, if you can think of like a composite of all the best players that you've coached, what percentage of rounds do you feel like they've played blank, meaning purely external? Zero. Yeah. I mean, I think that's really, really important for people to hear. Mm -hmm. and, and we even had George Gankis on a little bit ago, and he was talking about Matthew Wolf playing mm -hmm. very, very external. And I think that's an awesome message to get out to people is that. But at the same time, as having that, that message, he was also describing that Matt would have a swing feel exactly. and does have a swing feel. Yeah. And that feel is therefore defines divided attention. Right. All right. That's a good place to end it right there. Okay. I like it. So now we're not just good. It's okay to have a swing thought. It's okay to have a swing thought. Okay. In fact, um, oftentimes you've got to, uh, you might hear it on golf coverage that someone's playing in their head. And quite honestly, sometimes that's the truth. There's certainly a possibility for someone to err on the side of too much cerebral activity, too, too much conscious activity. It would be pretty common. Pretty common. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, understanding and finding that balance is what's necessary. Uh, but don't believe everything you hear. I got one more thing. Sorry. Oh, yeah. I know. We were trying to be short on these answers. There's a, I know, there's I was a long on that one. Dr. Rick Jensen, hmm. one of our favorite guys, one of his drills is a drill that he calls shift to play. You have three balls in front of you. And on one of them, you're blank. Nothing. 
zero, or maybe target, maybe just external, right? And on the next ball, on the next ball, you have your swing thought. You have whatever internal attention that you would have. And then on the third ball is like your shift to play ball. This, this is, I'm trying to marry those two together just a little bit. And then you, you, that, that's your way of auditioning. And then you try to figure out which one am I playing my best right now? And maybe that's what I'm going to go take out and play. But at least you're auditioning those three different areas of attention that you can have internal, external, blank, a blend, whatever. That is fantastic closure to okay, that, uh, shift to that to question. Yeah, do the shift to play. I, I think that we want to reiterate the point from the front end of this is our oxygen. We love doing these things. Uh, we can stand in front of people on an uh, hour or two hour basis and feel like we're making a contribution to that individual. But when we can cast a wider net and uh, hopefully help those that can submit questions or have conversations with some amazing people, then that allows us to help a wider audience or audience that's quite frankly spread around the world and it is growing into the umpteen thousands. So we appreciate your attention to this. We appreciate you tuning in and listening. We love doing it. And so, and, and your questions, we appreciate your questions right. because we've got hundreds of questions here. We picked the, the best few that we could. One other note that we should have is we want feedback because this time we did good. We got through like 15 questions in 45 minutes Whereas before that's a win. Yeah. So, well, I don't know if it is or not. So that's what we want to find out. Give us feedback. I'm going to say it's a win. Should we go deep and do just a few questions or should we kind of do more quick hitters? Not that we were really quick or brief on anything. Send us feedback through Instagram, Twitter, website, and please share. We would love it. Thanks very much for listening to this episode. If you want to learn more about Altus Performance, go check out altusperformance.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Team Altus and Instagram at Altus Performance. Also, thanks to Cordy Walker for his wonderful production work on this and coming episodes of Earn Your Edge.